to welcome everyone to Drisha's spring program and the second class of this session on the halachic process, a brief history. Thank you so much, Evie. Um, okay, so uh, I'm excited to see everyone again and uh, learn together. Um, so the sources were, were sent out. Um, I, I, I've been catching some of the other excellent classes um, from the spring uh, course here at Drisha. I noticed that some people have uh, have switched back and forth from whether they share a screen. So when they're not actually reading a source, they can see everyone. So I, I might try that today and see, see how that goes. Um, so our topic today is um, why do we rule like the Talmud? And more specifically, um, why do we rule like the Talmud Bavli? How did that become the central halachic text from which uh, or to which everybody afterwards has, has to answer? Um, and we're going to do this. Um, there'll be a mix of a, of a little bit of a history, um, or at least conjecture about history, um, with uh, with halachic process. And as you see in the sources in the uh, the subtitle, um, as we go through the question of how and why did the Bavli uh, become essential as it did, we will be addressing the question of why, in general, precedent is important in halachic argumentation. I mean, why is it that halachic authorities care about what previous authorities uh, have said? Um, and since the Bavli is the, the classic example, as that's what everybody cares about um, in the, uh, the rabbinic tradition post the Bavli, um, it's a good place to start. Um, but to begin, let us look at, at a, a Rambam, which I'd read many, many times in my life. It took me a long time to really understand um, what exactly the Rambam wanted to get out. Um, but um, once we see it, I think it really will frame our, uh, our discussion if we understand it, um, if we understand it fully. So um, source one. So here we have it in English and in Hebrew. Beidin gadol shedarshu ba'achat min hamidot kifi be'inehem if you have a court who expounds using one of the principles of exegesis that we use to understand the Torah, and another court arises and sees a reason to contradict, to go against what the first court said, they have full rights to challenge the ruling of the original court. And judge as they see fit. Because the Torah tells us, You will go to the judge that is in your days. You are only obligated to go to the judge in your days. I'm going to read both halachot and then I want to analyze it together. That's law one. That if a court derives any law and from the Torah, if a later court interprets the Torah differently, the first one said something was forbidden, the second one says it's permitted, they are within their rights completely to challenge the ruling of the original court. That's law one. Law two, if there is a court who decrees a decree or establishes some law, or establishes a custom. And it took hold in all the Jewish people. 
ואמר אחריהם בית דין אחר וביקש לבטל דברים הראשונים. And a later court comes and wants to uproot what the first court said. And wants to uproot that decree, that custom. They are not allowed to unless the later court is greater than the original court in, there's this enigmatic phrase at the end, in wisdom and in number, we'll bracket for the moment what that means. But the Ramam here is two halachot. And if we understand what he's doing, it will really highlight the question that we're trying to answer today, which is how did the Bible become as important as it is? So the Rambam again in law one says, if the rabbis interpret the Torah, biblical law, as saying that something is forbidden and a later court comes and says it is permitted, they have that right or vice versa. Law two, if the rabbis establish a rabbinic law or custom or decree and a later court wants to uproot it, they are very limited in their ability to uproot it. They have to fit certain qualifications. Namely, they have to be a greater court numerically and in terms of their intellect, whatever that means. Those qualifications, again, don't exist in law one for biblical law. Now, this is very strange, right? The fundamental question we have to ask is why is it that when it comes to biblical law, a later court has free reign to challenge an earlier court, but when it comes to rabbinic law or even custom, which we generally think of as much more lenient than biblical law, why is it that there we put so many restrictions on courts who wanna challenge the original decree? So that's the question I wanna throw out. So does someone have ideas of what, what the Rambam is getting at? Why does the Rambam say this? How does that make any sense? Why is it that we are freer to change previous rulings based on biblical law than we are rabbinic law, which seems very counterintuitive to someone. Um, anyone have an idea of what, what the Ramam is getting at? What, why? Yes, nothing. Important underscore in the second one is Ufasha, that the rabbinic tradition spread out. And that I think, according to some of my studies, becomes critically important in terms of its acclaim and therefore cannot simply you know, be overturned. I would think to your example, in the first piece of the Rambam, if the biblical law, for example, you know, was Ufashat, you'd have some you know, trouble with that as well. Um, so, right, so what Nachum suggests is that the, the qualification the Rambam adds namely that it has to take hold in the Jewish people, might give it a superpower, right? Might give it a superpower because if the, if the if Jew, Jews lived experience is in line with ruling X, then it has staying power and it takes more to, uh, to push back. Um, now that's definitely true in rabbinic law, though in biblical law, it would be surprising if that was as relevant. Now it could be that it is, and I could definitely, there are definitely, Authorities who think that Nachum is 100% right. Um, Rabbi David Bonfiel, um, a student of the Ramban, writing in the 13th century, uh, has some very surprising comments in that direction, um, as do, do certain of the Geonim. Um, so it's definitely possible, right? Is that 
Um, though, as far as I know, the Rambam doesn't say that biblical law that's taken hold um, is harder to uproot. Um, if he did, then that would be good evidence. Though I think Nachum is correct that the, the, the effect of, um, of acceptance um, is something that has to be challenged. Okay, I saw someone raise their hand. Um, Judy. Um, Hi, Judy Shear. Okay, go. And then I saw there was another person who did like a digital raise hand, but now it's, it's gone. So yeah, Nissan Nis uh, Nis can, talk, can talk next. Okay, so Judy and Nissan, go. Okay, thank you. Is it something to do with how the laws were derived at in that uh, biblical law is derived at by using these 13 principles, there is a kind of initial contact with it and there might be reason for different people to come to different conclusions, whereas it's different when the rabbinic laws are being established. There's something about the system that feels different. Oh, so Judy is, is picking up something very important, but let's, let's try to push it farther. So what, what is it? I think you're 100% right that the difference between something being based on those rules makes it unique. But what, what is it? That's, that's the million dollar question. So what is it? You're definitely right. But what, what is it? I'm not sure about this, but if biblical law is supposed to be interpreted by the rabbinic tradition, so it's not something exactly set in stone. I'm not sure about this. I'm kind of working it out as I talk. But um, if, if biblical law is, is supposed to be viewed through the rabbinic interpretive lens, then the interpretation can change. But if a rabbinic law is just a law, then it's not as flexible in a way. Ah, that makes good. Sense. So I think what Chaya said is a hundred percent. Let me, what? Oh, you said it. something and you muted. Okay. No, no, that's but it. Let, let me put it slightly differently, but I think Chaya is exactly right. I think the difference is as follows. When, as Judy said, the rabbis are using the canons of interpretation to understand the Torah, the rabbis are not the primary source. They are interpreters of something else. And therefore, as Chaya says, if the question is how do you interpret, but everybody is answerable to the biblical law, so that if somebody else reads the Torah differently, then they have the right to change how they rule. Because both the first court and the second court are answerable to the Torah. But that's not true with rabbinic law. Ironically, when the rabbis decree something, they're not answerable to anybody. Once the Torah granted them power, they are the, the canon. They are the law because they created it, right? They're the legislature. So imagine it as follows. The rabbis are both the Supreme Court who interpret the law, but they're also Congress. When they function in interpret their interpretive role. So they're like the Supreme Court. And we all know that the reason that choosing judges for the Supreme Court is so heated in America is because theoretically, all it takes is five judges to rule that Roe v. Wade should be overturned. And with no legislation, no nothing, right? We've overturned it because it's all they're claiming is that that's what the law always meant. And the previous court misunderstood it. But the second halacha, where they're acting as rabbinically, they're not acting as the Supreme Court, they're acting as Congress. 
And if Congress, let's say, were to amend the Constitution, the Supreme Court would no longer have the right to challenge them because now they've changed the law itself. And now you have to interpret that new law. And this is the complexity. When the rabbis are interpreting biblical law, they're like the Supreme Court. They're, they're answerable to the Constitution. And therefore, if someone else says you misunderstood the Constitution, all it takes is that statement. But when they make rabbinic law, they're acting like Congress. They're amending the Constitution. They're creating law. And that's why it's harder to change because you're not, in order to change it, you don't have to interpret it. You have to amend it, right? And amendments are harder than interpretation, okay? This is the fundamental insight that I think drives the Rambam. Um, my question is, if the biblical laws are interpreted by the rabbis according to set principles of interpretation, then does it like does that mean that there's wouldn't that mean that there's only one right answer? Ah, so you would you you would think so. The question of whether there's one right answer is hard, right? Meaning it could mean that there is one right answer, and that's specifically why. Um, uh, a later court can overturn it because if there's one answer, the later court can say, I think you got it wrong. Uh -huh. right? If there's one answer, they're arguing about what it is. Um, it's also possible that there are, you know, other thinkers think that there are multiple truths in heaven, but each court, each generation is bound to interpret the Torah as they see fit, even if God is okay with both answers. Now, that's mm -hmm. a sort of a share for another time. That is another theological way of, of imagining it. There are sort of middle ways of, uh, of, of imagining it, um, Tess Sunstein, the American Jew legal theorist, has this has this formulation based on Dworkin that maybe you can interpret law differently than the previous generation as long as it is uh, it makes sense in the context of tradition, sort of like fan fiction, right? Which is written by mm -hmm. multiple people, different chapters. So so maybe that's a middle level. You're constrained by previous generations, but but not but they don't tell you exactly what to say. That's a different model to think about. Um, but um, but yeah, all those are possible. But but let's just say for the Rambam, I think the answer is there's one interpretation, but you know you can argue about what it is, right? And that's exactly mm -hmm. why you could overturn a previous court. Um, but it would okay. mean the current court is saying those guys were wrong in their interpretation exactly. and, and we have the correct. Turn over because we're answerable to the Torah and we think you were wrong. It's a shocking thing to say, but it makes sense methodologically. Right. Um, I have a okay. question Nissan. according to the room. One second. Nissan yeah. Thank, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, sorry for my technical difficulties. No problem. Um, my contribution is uh, the Rashbam. Now, I know the Rashbam makes his comments in Parashat Vayeshev on, you know, in the Torah. And we and we we seem to relegate the Rashbam, you know, a la Torah as distinct from Rashbam on Shas. Uh, to some extent, but what he writes there is that um, he says that his grandfather told him he would have very much liked to have written uh, another pirush, you know, an additional pirush, and based on something, of course, that he shares with Rashbam, and I think Rama would also agree that the Torah itself has new interpretations relevant that are mitzchatshim b'chol yom. This the point being that even in halacha, if it's an issue that had not that has not been addressed by in other words, did not result in a gazera, had not had already been considered by the court and precedent established, and now we are looking at verses and we are 
we, the Chachamim, the Chachamim, the Chachamim, the Chachamim, the Chachamim, and we realize that there is something relevant from the text to our present situation, we can legislate accordingly. It will not be contradicting any any um, ruling that had that has the weight of precedent. I believe that that idea, even though the Rashbam makes it in you know in his Pirushala Torah, uh, I believe is absorbed uh, even into the corpus of halacha that the Rambam is channeling over here. Um, excellent. I think right the the Rashbam's notion of shatim amitchashim bechol yom right that there is this encouragement to in, to interpret the Torah differently. I think you're right that the Rambam may be may that may help us either understand the Rambam or or a parallel idea uh, to the Rambam. Okay, I think I'm going to take one more question and then we do need to move on. So Nachum, I'll take one more and then we'll we'll move on. Yeah. So in that same chapter of Hilchot Mamre. If I remember correctly, the Rambam himself says, almost similar to your first phrase, that a ruling in another community can overturn, you know, the ruling, you know, from some other place. So and we, I think that, and I, I'm, I'm not sure yeah. whether we're giving the significance that we need to to the word gezera because there's a difference between, in my humble opinion, rabbinic law and gezera, which is why I said earlier, gezera becomes something that is spread, um, it's ufashat, so the, and the therefore does, it's harder to overturn. So the Rambam consistently, as, as far as I remember, does refer to gezera as paradigmatic rabbinic law, uh, both here, but also in his introduction to the Mishnah Torah and the Mishnah of Right, his three examples of rabbinic law are the three that he puts here: gzera, takana, and minhad. Um, so I, I do think this is classic rabbinic law. Um, there are nuances as he as he, between different ones um, that he highlights in the 17th parak of Kalim in the Mishnah. Um, but but I, as far as I know, the language of gzera is his classic, at least one of his three classic languages for um, for for rabbinic law. Um, so I do think that's what he's doing here. It's possible that he has gradations. Um, that would make the fashat more more relevant, um, but at least for this person, I'm not. I, I don't know if it's um, if it makes if, if it will change it, but it's definitely possible. Um, okay, let's um, let's move on for now. So here's here's my question. At this point, the Kesef Mishnah, Rabbi Yosef Karo, the author of the Shulchan Aruch, the Beit Yosef, writing the 16th century, jumps in, and I never understood why he jumped in here. But now with the framing, we, we should understand it. He says, well, wait a second. Why is the Bavli binding? And I always wondered why here of all places did he ask why the Bavli is binding? And then I realized because the Rambam just told you that the rabbis, when they are interpreting biblical law are secondary sources. They're answerable to the Torah, and therefore a future generation, in principle, should always be able to overturn their ruling. And yet, every later authority bows down before the Bavli, which seems to violate everything that the Ramam just said, which is whenever you're interpreting Torah, not setting a decree, but interpreting Torah, you must, must listen to the Bavli, right? You must listen to whatever you think is true. 
And yet, in later generations, the Bavli, we treat the Bavli as if it's not interpretation, but if, as if it's canon, as if it's the primary source itself. And we try to interpret it rather than the Psukim. But that doesn't seem to make sense. And therefore, Rabbi Yosef Karo jumps in and says, why? Why is the Talmud so important? And why before the Talmud did the rabbis of the Talmud, both Bavli and Yerushalmi, think they were answerable to the Mishnah? I don't understand. You just told me that as when you're interpreting biblical law, the only thing you have to answer to is God's word. So why is the Mishnah binding? Why is the Gemara binding? What is this? Right? Rabbinic Judaism assumes it, but it makes no sense. And that's why if you look here in three, I'll have to skip two for now. But if you look at three, to make it quicker, we'll look at my translation here. The, the Rabbi Yosef Kairo says, if so, why did the Amorim not argue on the Tanaim? I mean, why did the authors of both Talmuds not argue on the Mishnah? As it is common to challenge an Amorah based on a Mishnah or Brighton, and he must respond, I rule like this Tana. And if he does not say it, it's considered a challenge. Once you've said that when you're interpreting the biblical law, you're only answerable to God himself, then why suddenly is it such a good question? Well, you seem to go against the Mishnah. So what? So Shmuel went against the Mishnah. That's because he thought that Rabbi Akiva got it wrong. What do you want from his life? That's what you're supposed to do. And this is the question, is we don't. The Gemara doesn't challenge the Mishnah. And if they do, it's because they found another Tana to support them. And we, post-Talmud, don't challenge the Bavli. But why? Why not? And this is the million-dollar question. So. Before we read the Kesef Mishnah's answer, and I know this is dangerous because I may not get through sources if I throw it out, but, but I'll throw it out one more time and then we will have to get through sources, but I'll, I'll take three possibilities here. Why do you think it makes sense that we seem to break this rule of letting the Torah continue to speak for itself and thereby letting later authorities challenge earlier ones with no limitations, why do we break that rule and listen to the Bavli? I, I have a feeling Nachum is going to like the Kesem Mishnah's answer because it's based on what Nachum think is, is the principle of Jewish law. We'll see that. Nachum is going to like it, but, but, um, but we'll see, right? I'll take, I'll take, if anyone has quickly though, I'll take, I'll take suggestions. Um, can I say something? Yes, who's um, talking? I'm mocking. Tell me who's talking. Hi. Mark okay, Hi. Um, and I was just thinking that if they need to have, obviously the Torah is from God and we don't question that, but they have to have some sort of, I wouldn't say baseline, but they have to have some sort of, I wouldn't say other godly answer because they want to be able to say, obviously if the Torah was all orally and traditionally based, then they have to have something that they call the tradition that they have put down into the Mishnah. And if they keep questioning that, then what makes the Torah or what the tradition that they brought down binding? That's 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 what I'm I'm thinking. I think they okay, need good. To be some good. Sort so first possibility, let's call it. Um, 
there are two things that I'm hearing in what you're saying, but let's say one is stability and the other is maybe truth, right? One is that the law has to become stable at some point. The other is that if the tradition reflects truth, at some point you're answerable to truth. And I'm catching you right, both of those sort of were, were, were implicit in what you were saying. Is that, is that fair? That there's a little bit of both answers there? Yeah, yep, it's, it's fair, fair, a okay, little good. bit of both. Good, so we'll see that that's gonna, perfect. Okay, good. And I'll, I will already channel Nahum and, uh, and say that maybe the answer is what I, you know, unfairly didn't give him enough credit for, but that was because I had to get to this, is, well, maybe we're not giving enough credit to these magic words of Pashat Bechal Yisrael, this power of the acceptance of the Jewish people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to already throw that out there, okay? So let's see that each of these answers emerges. So the Kesem Mishnah himself says the answer is acceptance. You know what? We didn't have to, but we did. Oh, wait. Okay, I see. I said I would take three people, so... I, and I only took one and then channel the second, which was maybe unfair of me. But Yehudi. 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 Okay. Go. I, I, don't, I think that what happened was the Mishnah itself really wasn't accepted at the moment it was published. I think the only reason it ever did get accepted was because Yerushalmi and more important, the Babli, went out of their way. Uh, to essentially prove that every single thing of the Mishnah derives from the Torah, from the Tanakh. In other words, the main work of the Talmudim is <clears throat> basically, what's the typical way the Gemara opens? With a statement like Menalan or Menahat Nimili, and then three quarters of the Gemara is just proving that whatever the Mishnah says has a basis, in at least in the Tanakh and usually in the Torah. In other words, had they not done that, I don't think the Mishnah ever would have become accepted. I think the reason it became accepted was because they were able to prove to the to first to the people in Eretz Israel. And when Rav brought a copy of the Mishnah to Bavel, that was what basically started the Bavli going because they knew that the locals in Bavel are never going to accept this work from Eretz Israel unless basically they can show that this work has some biblical credibility. Once that process started, then from that point on, it became institutionalized. In other words, every, every time there was a major historical event, we decided that the people who came after that event can't argue with the people who came before that event. The big historical event that came at the time of the mission was the Sasanian conquest of the Parthian Empire. The next big time is the Islamic conquest of the Sasanian Empire. That's where we start to go on them. The next big thing is when we move to Europe. That's where we become the Rishonim. After the expulsion from Spain, we have the Ahronim. In other words, but the thing that started okay. this whole thing going was selling the Mishnah to the public on the basis of it's not really a freestanding document like it pretends to be. Okay? Okay, good. It really so, is anchored so in the Torah. Right, so if what I'm hearing from Yuri is on the one hand, there's a level of acceptance here, but there's also a level at which I'm sort of lying here, where maybe it wasn't really accepted qua being a text. It was accepted because people were convinced by it, right? And that's why it was accepted. And we're gonna see that, we're gonna see that. So perfect, okay. So let's see all these answers in play. Kesev Mishnah himself, Rabbi Yosef Karo says, perhaps we can say 
that from the day the Mishnah was sealed, they accepted that the later generations would not argue on the earlier ones. And they did the same when the Talmud was sealed, that from that day, no one would have permission to argue on it. Yosef Karo says, the answer is, why don't we challenge the Bavli? Because we accepted not to. That's all. That's all. We accepted not to. Why did the rabbis of the, of the Gemara not challenge the Mishnah? Because they accepted not to. That's it. Why did they accept not to? He doesn't say. Is it because they were convinced it was true? It was because they needed stability? Nobody knows. But they accepted it. And in the end of the day, acceptance, as Nachum correctly pointed out, that's what gave it its power. Because we agreed. Now, how formally did we agree? That's an interesting question. The Kesev Mishnah doesn't give you a historic, doesn't point to a day and say, we voted. He just says, we accepted it. Maybe it was a process. Maybe it happened quickly. Maybe it happened in a little bit of a longer time period. We don't really know. But the answer is, at some point, we accepted it because of stability, because of whatever. And that's why it's binding, because we, we chose to make it binding. That's all. Now. I said that as I'm going through the historical, I'll point to methodological points. And what Yehudi said is 100% right, is that we, the Rabbi Yosef Kara, when he says this, that in the end of the day, what makes a text binding is that we agree to make it binding for whatever reason, because we've been through a historical shift that makes it that we want stability after that, or whatever it is, that phenomenon continues. And I think Yehudi is 100% right, because Rabbi Yosef Karo, himself, when he seems to write the Shulchan Aruch, seems to basically tr try to accomplish the same thing and garner acceptance of the closing of the Rishonic period post the expulsion from Spain and the beginning of the printing press and everything that's going on in the 16th century that we'll, we'll talk about, 15th to 16th century. Um, but yeah, because he thinks acceptance is so important that and he thinks, importantly, as Yehudi points out, you could do that later in history also, right? Maybe not with the same level of acceptance, and people will therefore challenge Shulchan Aruch more than they would the Gemara. But fundamentally, yeah, in the end of the day, what makes things binding is when we agree to make it binding. And that's it. Now, the Smag, Zeber Mitzvah Gedolot, so he's writing several hundred years before that, um, he also seems to say it's about acceptance, but unlike the Kesef, unlike the Kesef Mishnah, unlike the Rosh Karo, who thinks, you know, we sort of at some point accepted it, but I don't know when, I don't know how, it just sort of happened. The Smog can't believe that that's true. Um, and he imagines with, I don't know what his basis is for this historical claim, that no, we accepted it, but not like informally, formally. We got together a group of rabbis and declared, henceforth, the Bavli is binding. And that's what he writes. Rav Ashi was the head of the Academy of the Jews in the Diaspora. And since the days of Rebbe until Rav Ashi, there's a source for here, Torah and greatness were not found in the same place. And God gave him grace in the eyes of the Persian king, or technically Sasanian, as, as Yuri notes. Um, so he gathered all the sages of Israel in all the lands and established the interpretation of the Mishnah, which is called the Talmud Bavli, and arranged it with the agreement of all the sages of the generations. <clears throat> so there are some people who really try to make the Kesed Mishnah very different from the Smag, and they are in the sense that one of the Smag 
thinks that there was a formal moment where we voted and therefore it took on the authority of a court voting to accept it. And the Kesem Mishnah is more informal. Um, but the common denominator is that they think what made the Bavli binding is that we accepted it, formally or informally, that's what made it binding. Um, and a similar theory, though, with nuance, it appears in the works of Elchanan uh, Wasserman in two places. Um, I'll start with this one, which I have in English. Um, and he said, I asked of my teacher, Reb Chaim Brisk. Right, so this is, now you're talking 19th, 20th century. Right, Reb Chaim Brisk, the grandfather of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, um, the grandfather also of the Rabbi Soloveitchik who passed away last week. Um, which maybe not positively, you saw pictures of his funeral. Um, but I asked this of my teacher, Chaim Abrisk, and he responded that in truth, an Amora also has the authority to argue on a Tana. The reason that we challenge the Amoraim based on the Tana in is because an Amora wouldn't argue on a Tana. And if he had known the position of a Tana, he would not have argued. So he quotes Chaim Salavechik, who says, look, it's not that the Amoraim couldn't have argued. They could have. They just chose not to. And once they chose not to, because of their internal commitment to not challenge them, so if you saw a contradiction, you could undermine their position based on the contradiction with a Tanaitic source. But in the end of the day, it's not even there was, it's not even like there was a formal acceptance, not an informal acceptance. I don't, I don't even know what you want to call it. They just chose not to. At, and once they chose not to, you can call people to task for not being consistent with their own methodological assumptions. But therefore, he takes the logical implication of this slightly farther, which is maybe that's only true most of the time. Right? As Yehudi said, maybe they didn't really accept it. I mean, they sort of accepted it, you know, because it made sense to them. But if it didn't, so don't worry about it too much. Right? He says, however, if he explicitly argued, it could be the law is like him. It seems clear from that which we found in many places where the Amorim say about a Mishnah, this is not a Mishnah. Right? Reb Chaim says, well, if it's about acceptance, like you chose not to challenge, so then maybe the Amorim could, and sometimes maybe they even did challenge the Mishnah, and calling the Mishnah the final text for the Gemara is only 90% true. But it's not really true because they agreed to not challenge it unless they really wanted to. Unless they really wanted to. Um, and he quotes this from Ramban, that we only challenge an Amora based on the words of Atana if these words are in a Mishnah or a Brita and not in another saying. Then he can argue on Atana. He said, that's why it's not that Amoraim never argued on Tanaim. They never argued on the Mishnah because they, that was what they agreed to. They didn't agree to not challenge Tanaim in other sources, in a, not in a Mishnah, not in a Brayta. And therefore, if Atana said something else, good for him. I mean, it's very nice. We care about it, but it's not going to be the final word. Um, so once you start going acceptance, you could take formal acceptance like the smog. There was a vote informal acceptance, but you can't challenge it, which seems like a Rios of Caro, or acceptance, sort of, most of the time. You know, most of the time. 
what Reb Chaim doesn't say is whether the same thing is true post-Talmud, right? Could it be that our relationship to the Talmud is the same, which is we accept it, you know, mostly, and we try to not directly contradict the Talmud. But if it turns out that our interpretation of the Talmud is not what they meant, that's not really a problem because we accept it to not explicitly contradict the Talmud. But if we don't know we're contradicting them because we interpret it and it turns out we're wrong, it's not such a big deal because it was based on our acceptance, you know? And we never accept it to get it right. We accept it to do our best to interpret it and not contradict them, right? That might be the logical extension of time, though obviously he doesn't say that uh, explicitly. Um, I will note that there are much more radical um, formulations um, that really do say, yeah, we only sort of accepted it. Um, so if you so if you look, for example, here in number seven, um, many times in the Gemara, the Gemara says the answer to this contra seeming contradiction in the Mishnah is chesure mechsera. There are missing words, or sami Mishnah mikan. Let's uh, remove that Mishnah. It's not authoritative. Most authorities believe, most traditional authorities mean, say that that means that the rabbis of the Talmud are actually assuming that there was some editorial mistake that they're trying to fix, but they're bound to the original text of the Mishnah, and that's why they're trying to reconstruct it. But that's not necessarily the case. Um, so, for example, Reb David Svi Hoffman, writing in the 19th century in Germany, quotes from the Vilna Gaon, Rabbi Eliyahu Kramer, the Gra, writing in the 18th century, um, to give you, people sometimes don't quite get this, but it's helpful to remember. The Gra, the Vilna Gaon, is a contemporary of George Washington. Okay, so if you want to know when he lives, right, think George Washington. Okay, that's what's happening in the world when the Gra is, is writing. Um, so he writes, no, that all these, they are missing words. It's not that anything is missing in that which Rebbe HaKadosh arranged. It is not normal for him to miss something. Rather, it means that Rebbe ruled like one Tana without attribution and did not miss anything according to his position. The Gemara rules like the other Tana and for him, there is something missing. <clears throat> so the Gra makes a fascinating move. And he says, when the Gemara says there are missing words, it doesn't mean Rebbe originally wrote this in the Mishnah and we're just correcting the text. It's Rebbe really said what he said, but we think it's wrong. The Gemara thinks it's wrong. And therefore they're filling in the gaps to accord with what they think the Mishnah should have said, but did not. So you, now, admittedly, the Gra says that this is only when they were trying to find support for their position from another Tanaitic position. Meaning they're bound to the Tanaim, the period of the Mishnah, but not to the text of the Mishnah. But that's only the position of the, the Gra. But there is this shocking position, one second, of the Mi'iri, writing in 13th century Provence, or Benacha Mi'iri, who goes a step farther. And he says here in source 12, when the scholars of the generation agreed 
that something was a strong question. As they said, this Mishnah is according to only one position. Remove from here. It is not a Mishnah. It is missing words. For perfection is not found among creations, even the best of them, to the point where the later ones could not argue with them even on some things. The Me'iri just says, you know why the Gemara sometimes says, rewrite the Mishnah? Not because they think that's what the Mishnah said, and not like the Grah, because they found another Tanaitic position, but because they mostly accepted the Mishnah. But sometimes they didn't, because human beings are fallible. And therefore, maybe they made a mistake. And if they made a mistake, so the Gemara corrected it, and they ruled differently. Right? So the first model we have of why accept the Bavli, which is based on acceptance, broadly speaking, formal, smog, informal, Kesev Mishnah, leads to the possibility <clears throat> that maybe we mostly accepted it, but not totally. Um, maybe we accepted the Tanaim, but not the Mishnah per se, the Grah. Or maybe we only accepted it most of the time, the Miri. And again, none of them, none of these authorities explicitly say that we do the same with the Gemara. But you have to wonder, are they going to say that the same is true of the way we relate to the Gemara? Meaning, we're bound to the Bavli. Mostly. But like everyone asks, why does the Rambam sometimes paskin get seem to rule against the Bavli like the Yerushalmi? Don't we paskin like the Bavli? Well, maybe the Rambam thought we mostly paskin like the Bavli, unless the Yerushalmi is really compelling, in which case we don't. Right? And Rav Goran at some point just compiled the list and said, yeah, these are the places the Rambam seems to rule like the Yerushalmi against the Bavli. But that's sort of category one, that the reason we listen to the Bavli and the Mishnah and maybe later authorities is because we agreed to. But maybe if it's because we agreed to it, we mostly agreed to it. And most, most of the time, unless we're really convinced it's wrong. Again, no one explicitly says that's true of the Bavli, right? But you have to wonder, once they say that's what the rabbis of the Gemara are doing to the Mishnah, you have to wonder if they think that's what we're doing with the Gemara, meaning we're trying our best to follow the Gemara, but it's not impossible that in truth, we're following our own interpretation of the Torah, doing our best to align it with the Bavli, and maybe we're just wrong, but maybe in principle, that's not a problem, because the only reason we follow the Bavli to begin with is because we agreed to, and we agreed to do our best, but that's our best. It's not the absolute rule. Okay. That's models, let's call them one, one, one and one and a half, right? Variations on a theme of, uh, of acceptance. Now, admittedly, and I did not put the full text of it here, the Chazon Ish asked Rav Hanan Wasserman what I just said, which is, but according to you, shouldn't we be allowed to challenge the Gemara? Meaning if it's just about agreement, then may, what if we change our minds? Right? And Rebbe Hanan struggles to answer that question because he doesn't believe it's true. But the Chazanish is correct that that may emerge logically, as we pointed out, from that position that maybe in principle we should be able to even if we don't. Okay, so that's the first model. But as I said, the Chazanish doesn't like this. Um, the Chazanish therefore says um, 
two things that, oh, now I forget who it was who said it before. One second. Malki. I think it was Malki. Um, the Chazanish basically says both things that Malki said, right? One is, no, maybe it's not about acceptance. It's about a belief that the earlier texts are truer, one. And B, we need a certain level of stability in the Torah. The Chazanish basically says both. Um, the Chazanish says, the truth is in the generation after the Mishnah. They say the minimizing the hearts compared to the awesome of the Mishnah and knew for sure the truth is always the early ones, right? Point one, they didn't argue. We don't, the rabbis of the Talmud didn't argue with the Mishnah because they realized the rabbis of the Mishnah just got it right more than they did. They were true. They were earlier. They were smarter. They were closer to Harsinai. So they are right. Um, and the same thing happened after the Talmud for him. Um, and therefore, he challenges the Kesev Mishnah. And he says, that which the Kesev Mishnah said that they accepted it. It's not the case that they were kind toward the earlier ones. This is not like we accepted it because, you know, we're being nice. We accepted it because truth obligates. Right? There was that moment where the Jews seemed to have just realized, oh, the earlier generations revealed the truth and we'll never get closer to the truth than we could by reading them. The rabbis of the Talmud realized that about the Mishnah, and we realized that about the Talmud. In a second place, the Chazanish argues that there's slightly more to it, uh, based on a cryptic comment in the Gemara, that the first 2,000 years of the world are the years of creation, or of tohu, really, of the lack of creation, of chaos. The second 2,000 years of history are the years of Torah, which closes more or less with the closing of the Mishnah or the Gemara, something around there. And then after that is the 2,000 years of the Messianic period. The Chazanish says it wasn't just arbitrary that at that point the Torah closed. But God's original plan for the world is that the creation of new Torah would happen in that middle 2,000 years of history. And after that, we only interpret what happened before. But that seals history into place. So that's model two and three, right? Or mix, truth plus stability. Model three, which is pure stability, comes from a very fascinating sefer, um, the Dor Revi'i um, of Ramosha Shmuel Glasner. He was the fourth generation from the Chatam Sofer, the, the father of Karedi Judaism. In, um, in Hungary. So he's the fourth generation. So he calls his book, The Dora Vee, the fourth generation. He was an interesting character, a Zionist, um, uh, a proto-Zionist maybe, um, fascinating thinker. Um, I see we're running short on time, so I'll say it outside, but you have it here in English in number 13. He didn't write it in English, but Rabbi Dr. Elman translated it and uh, it's, it's there. It was a, an article of tradition years ago. He says, you know what? It's not because the earlier generations were true. It's not because we accepted it. It goes like this. Oral Torah is flexible. Written Torah is not flexible. And what happened when Rebbe chose to write down the Mishnah? 
And Ravina and Ravashi chose to write down the Gemara because, you know, of chaos and persecution and all the reasons that it happened was that they temporarily changed oral Torah to written Torah, thereby making it less flexible. That's what he says. It's not about, it's because the act of making something written Torah makes it less flexible. Now he takes it farther and he says, therefore, several times in the Gemara, the Gemara says that if something is only going to deal with the messianic period, we don't bother ruling on it because it's It's laws that are re relevant only in the messianic period. So Ray Glasner says, so what? So it's relevant to the messianic period. So you don't have to answer the question. Speculate about what the law is. So it, it's not relevant yet. Who cares? He says, you know why they don't care? Because when Mashiach comes, the first thing that's going to happen is the Bavli is no longer going to be binding. The Bavli is going to be like the way we treat Rishonim. It'll be important precedent, but it's not going to be canon. It's not going to be binding. It's just going to be another group of opinions that were shared by rab important rabbis in the past. And therefore, until the Mashiach comes, until the Messiah comes, and the Torah, the Bab, the Gemara is written down, it is binding because it's written, so you can't change it. But it's not even just that we accepted it. We accepted it temporarily until such point as we can get to the ideal, which is to return the oral law to orality. And once it, it returns to being oral, it will not be binding. It will just be part of the conversation. Okay? So here are the models that we have. Our acceptance, full acceptance, formal acceptance, smog, informal but binding acceptance, Kesev Mishnah, informal acceptance, which might only be most of the time, gra in certain ways, mi'iri, acceptance because it's written, but only temporarily, which is Rebbe Glasner. But I don't know, right? But it seems to be that for him, it's less about acceptance and more, as Malki pointed out, about stability, right? Because for him, it's while we're persecuted, the oral law is safer written down. And while it's written down, it can't change, right? That sounds like prime, it's less about the acceptance and more about just a commitment to stability until we get to the messianic period where we can afford for things to be not stable, right? Or something like that. And then there's the chazonish, which is, no, we accept the previous generations, especially the Mishnah and the Gemara, because they were right. And you always answer to truth. Now, I see people are starting to ask questions. So let me, we're not going to get to all the sources, which is fine. I, which is totally fine. I wanted you to have these sources so that you could look at them afterwards. But I do want to at least begin to address the question, which I have sort of skirted around, which is, okay, this answers why the rabbis of the two Talmuds in the fourth and fifth century accepted the Mishnah and why we post-Talmud accept the Talmud. But why did we accept the Bavli over the Rushalmi, which seems to be the consensus of rabbinic thinkers? We haven't answered that question. 
So here I'll throw out three models very quickly. Um, and I know I'm not giving them justice, but okay. The riff in number eight, if you want to look at it, Rivitz Galfasi writing in the 10th century is 10th, 11th century in Fez in Morocco has a very simple answer, which is the rule in halachic, um, of halachic authorities is halacha kibatrai. We follow the later authorities on the assumption that since the later authorities saw the earlier authorities and made their decision taking everything into account, the later that you are, the more authoritative you are up to a point. And therefore, the Bavli, since they come 100 years post the Yerushalmi, incorporated the views of the Yerushalmi, decided against them, and we are bound by the later Talmud simply because they knew what the earlier generation said, and therefore their interpretation is more comprehensive. Possibility one. Um, possibility two, um, and I gave you here, I, I had to quote it. I quoted it pretty lengthily, so just so you have it. Um, but I had to quote it because I discovered that um, an old chavrusa of mine um, from my years in uh, yeshiva, we learned for a bit, uh, Professor Simcha Gross at Penn um, addressed this in his, uh, in his dissertation, uh, Empires and Neighbors, uh, Babylonian Jewish Identity in its Local and Imperial Context, um, that there is a polemical letter written by Perkoi ben Bavoy uh, in the 8th, 9th century. And he basically says as follows. Um, you write better halacha when you don't have a gun to your head. The Yerushalmi was written under very trying conditions because the Jews of Israel were persecuted. The Jews in Bavel were less persecuted, so they had better calm of mind. And therefore, while they're both important, we follow the Bavli because um, they wrote it with less persecution to, and therefore with more clarity. That, in a nutshell, is um, his argument. Um, third possibility, and this is from um, the Drashud Beit Yishai of Shlomo Fisher, writing the 20th century in Israel. Um, he says, Etc. <laughs> Now, what did he say? No, I read that in Hebrew quickly, but I'll say it outside. He is convinced by the Kesef Mishnah that the reason we follow the Bavli is because we accepted it. So he has a very simple answer to why we accept the Bavli and not the Yerushalmi. And that is because we did. I don't know. We did. If it's about acceptance, why are you asking me? We did. Why? I don't know. We didn't have access to it. We didn't read it. Once we weren't reading it, so we didn't accept it. And once we weren't accepting it anyways, so it didn't get as edited and perfected. And once it wasn't as perfected, we stopped reading it. And it was an endless cycle. But you know what? In the end of the day, if, we, if the reason the Bavli is binding is because we accepted it, then if we didn't accept the Yerushalmi, so we didn't. What do you want from my life? Right? It's pretty simple. Okay, 
I see I have 30 seconds left before the hour. I will stay on as long as you want for questions. But to make sure the main theories are clear, let me summarize quickly. The million dollar question. Why did the Gemara, the two Talmuds, accept the Mishnah? And why do we accept the Bavli? So model one, formal acceptance, the Smag. We got together, we voted as a Betin, nothing you can do. Informal acceptance, but total, Kesev Mishnah. We agreed, the, the Talmud agreed to listen to the Mishnah, we agreed to listen to the Talmud, and as Nachum said, acceptance, that's what it's all about. If the Jews accept it, then, that, then it is binding, because the power comes from us. Possibility 2B, we accepted it mostly. The Talmud sometimes argues on the, on the Mishnah, either finding other Tanaim, the Gra, or simply because it argues because nobody's perfect. Mi'iri, open question, is that true post-Talmud? I don't know the answer to that question, but possibly. Three, we listened to earlier generations because they knew the truth. Chazonish, and we always listen to truth. 3B of the, of the Chazonish, and that's how God wanted it because for stability purposes, Torah is only created in the middle 2,000 years of, the, of history. Next model, because of persecution, we had to create a stable system, and therefore, we had the Torah written down. Oral law is flexible. Written law is not. Rav Shmuel, Shmuel Glasner in the Doravi. But maybe in the Messianic period, we will actually go back to Paskin against the Babylon. Um, with all of that in mind, why then the Bavli over the Yerushalmi? Three answers. One, because it's about acceptance and we didn't accept the Yerushalmi. Stop asking questions. Two, the Bavli is later, the rift. And therefore the Bavli saw the Yerushalmi, so it's more comprehensive. Or three, the Bavli is better because Pirkei Ben Baboy writing the eighth, ninth century, because they were less persecuted. They had more, they had more clarity when they wrote it and therefore it's a better text. Okay, the last thing I'll say is that these models, even though technically the question we've been dealing with um, is why did we accept the Mishnah and the Gemara? As, you, as uh, Yehudi pointed out bef uh, before, and we'll talk about this when we talk about the acceptance of Shulchan Aruch, <clears throat> the same models in a lesser extent drive to what extent do we, if at all, do we accept the Shulchan Aruch or the Mishnah Brura or later authorities, right? Because the same reasons why we might accept the Babli come up later because the early authorities are truer, because we accepted it, because we need stability, right? Those same models will influence how we think about the later periods of lesser canonization, Shulchan Aruch, Mishnah Brura, whatever the case may be. I'm going to stop there um, because I'm over time. But I will stay as long as you want for questions. Um, next week's Sheer, just so you know, once we've talked about this, um, the power of the Bavli, the next question I want to deal with is, okay, so maybe we don't challenge the Bavli. But if we have a new interpretation that doesn't challenge the Bavli based on Sukkim, can we create new Torah? Which, as we saw for the Chazanish, maybe not. But can we create new Torah based on the Sukkim? That's our question for next week. There are many more sources on this. I knew I wouldn't get through everything, but I wanted you to have it. So, um, okay.
thank you everyone for coming. I enjoyed learning with you. I see I have a bunch of questions, but I'm freeing all of you. We are done officially. This is officially over. This is post post sheer talk with the rabbi. I don't know, whatever you call it, right? I think so. Uh, Sophia, you yeah, were waiting yeah. to ask someone something, right? Okay. Yeah. Thank you so much, Rabbi Zering. Um, I just had a question. Is it, and this is on the door review specifically, but is it possible? Like you were saying how it's sort of temporarily binding. Could it be that it's not that it's temporarily binding just because persecution we need stability, but from a different perspective that the nature of written things is less flexible and um, which is I, less I a stability point. That's right. just a nature of written. Right. So you're right. You could have said a modification, which is once it's written down, it becomes binding because it's less flexible and that's forever now. You could say that. He happens to not say that, right? I think you're right, Sophia. You could say that. If you actually look at the Doravii, um, he himself takes the more radical position, which is um, not that way. Um, uh, you know what? I don't think I actually, or I think I just put the thesis that, oh no, here we go. Yes, um, I'll just read the key line. He says, when the temple is rebuilt fittingly in our times and the children return to their boundary and the crown is returned to its former condition and that the oral Torah will be transmitted orally and it will be forbidden to write it down, then the sages of each generation will have the right to interpret the Torah according to their own understanding without reference to the interpretation of their predecessors. For the oral Torah will not have been written down in an iron pen to be unchanging. Right? So you could have said that. It's a plausible, logical possibility. He happens to not say that, right? He happens to take it that one step farther and say, you know what? Throw it out. <laughs> when Mashiach comes, I mean, not, don't throw it out. <laughs> it's very important, but it's no longer binding. It's just another book on our shelf, not the book on our shelf. Um, but you're right. Sophia, you're 100% right. You didn't have to say that. He just happens to actually say that. Okay, I have like five questions in the... Chat. So let me take up, take that up. So Nissan says um, the Chazon Ish is taken by many um, to uh, based on this to I I exclude manuscripts. Um, yes. Um, for anyone who wants, you can email me afterwards. I, I have a long treatment of the Chazon Ish's position on manuscripts. Uh, I don't think I have anything new to say on the topic. There was a long back and forth several years ago. Um, in uh, in tradition, I think it was. Um, I gave Sheer on it several a while ago at this point, um, but but I'm happy to send the link uh, to that. But you're right, the Chazanish's idea that the Torah freezes in that middle two thousand years is part of what leads him to not care about new discoveries of manuscripts. hundred percent, that's true. Um, David um, notes that yes. Another possibility that academics will give you, but we've run out of time, that the Bavli won against the Rushalmi was simply that the Gaonim in Bavel were better marketers than the Gaonim in, uh, in Israel. That is definitely possible. And historically, there's a lot to be said for that one because we know that this notion that the Bavli was always accepted rather than the Rushalmi is not really true. And for a long time, um, people in Eretz Israel followed traditions that were contra the Bavli. Um, which does seem to be evidence that at some level, what we take as a given wasn't always a given. 
Uh, at this point, it may be a given um, because we accepted it. But yes, historically, the fourth possibility is we didn't really accept the Bavli more than Yerushalmi, or at least not immediately, it happened eventually, right? So that's the fourth possibility, um, which is favored by, by academics. Um, he notes here that it is in um, Talia Fishman's book, Becoming the People of the Talmud. That is definitely um, correct. Um, her book has been challenged um, by other academics, most notably uh, Professor Chaim Salvechik, who challenged it quite heavily. So I don't want to get into the nuanced academic de debates there. But um, but yes, that is another possibility is why the Bavli of Nirushalmi is simply the Gaonim and Bavel forced it down the people in Eretz Yisrael's throats, uh, soft and hard persuasion, and eventually it worked. Yes, that is, uh, that is definitely doing? true. Yes. Just yes, a quick question for you uh, from sure. Evie here. Uh, is it okay? Uh, somebody is asking for your email address in the chat. Is it okay? Yeah, to is it, it's not on the top. Of, it's oh, also on the top of the source sheet. Oh, okay, perfect. There. I'll share it in the chat as well. And it's yes, also it's in the, the I, I, I make sure to perfect. include my email in the source sheets for that reason. Um, okay. But yeah, my email is there. You are more than welcome to email me um, with any follow-up questions because we're trying to cover a lot and the way I can excuse to myself that we don't spend forever on each topic is uh, besides the fact that our my mandate is an hour is that there is email and you can follow up with me. So, so please take me up on that. Um, so yes, uh, I see Malky so I have also has yes, there. Um, uh, Nissan said something in source 10. I, I think that's going on his previous comment with the Hazanis. I think that's right. Um, okay. So I have a, so I have a um, question, but I was waiting. One second, I see one more question in the chat. Um, yes, um, part of the evidence that the Bavli was not quite as accepted universally as, uh, as we claim it was, is the fact that many of the customs in um, Ashkenaz especially seem to not perfectly fit the Bavli tradition, which, and this is a very complicated dispute amongst academics, um, but, um, Avram Grossman and Yisrael Tashma um, both took this as evidence that um, despite saying that we accept the Bavli over the Yerushalmi, in practice, um, we did accept a lot of Eretz Yisrael uh, traditions. Um, again, Professor Chaim Salvejic pushed back very heavily on, uh, on this, uh, this argument, arguing that that may be true in liturgy uh, and certain, certain customs but not in law, um, you, one could push back against Professor Soloveitchik and say, even if that's true, the line between law and custom and liturgy might be too sharp um, and maybe evidence that Eretz Israel traditions followed up in custom and liturgy is evidence that we accepted the Yerushalmi more than we admit. I'm willing to accept all of that, but David is 100% correct that um, it may be that in fact, we did accept a lot of Yerushalmi traditions. Um, and again, Tashma's written about it and Grossman's written about it and Chaim Salvechik's written about it. And um, Chaim Salvechik has his own solution to the, some of the weird practices in, uh, in Eretz Israel. i uh, sorry, in, in, uh, in Ashkenaz. And that is um, positing the existence of a third yeshiva in Bavel um, that was not known by the rest of, uh, not, not Surah and Pumbadita and uh, had its own traditions and influenced Ashkenaz and we just don't know exactly how. Um, the article I think is called the third yeshiva in Babel, I think. I think that's the actual name of the article, um, if I remember correctly. 
Um, so yes, David is 100% correct. Um, and this is why I wish, you know, this were like a 20 part series. When I originally started teaching halakhic process, I started doing this years ago because I was interested in it and I wanted to study it myself. I had no idea how long I would go for. Uh, at this point, I've probably given a series of about 150 to 200 shiram on the topic, of which I had to pick, pick, you know, six for this series because, you know, I like to think about this as long as it takes me to to feel like I have, you know, clarity in these issues. But we do what we can with six hours over the course of six weeks. Um, so that's why I have an email. You know, you can email me, and I, I'm happy to follow up with these conversations forever. Um, Nachum, you had another question. Go. I was just trying to be respectful that you got them all others because I can follow up not so much by email, which I can do, but by phone. But my, my real question is a methodological one, <clears throat> which makes me uneasy with the second part of the Shir post Rambam. My interpretation of Rambam, you know, in Hilchos Mamrim, is that it says, it references the word Bezdin. It says, Bezdin Shigazru Gezeira, Teknu Takana. So that's a Bezdin. Now, if I understood you correctly, you interpret that as something Meha Torah. Now, <clears throat> no, I'm no, not, no. In, in, so, in, in, the, in the first, I mean, the second halacha. No, in both. No, in the first halacha. Which, which in, the first Even, halacha or the second one? Halacha Aleph or Halacha Bet? In both. In other, oh, in so, the, yeah. In, in other words, it's not, you, you gave this dichotomy of early on, which, by the way, if we pass forward to the end of this year, we go back to more of the immutability, immutability of written than oral. <clears throat> Be that as it may, my interpretation of Besden is not that it's more flexible because it's Mea Torah. It's more flexible because it's open you know, to interpretation. And it's not necessarily one Mea Torah or one um, May Rabbanan that the real essence is, is that it's exera. Now, but that's that's I only think, true in the second halacha, not the first. Right. So, right? so the, the first so one the first, is darshu. The first right, one so, is if they interpret the Torah itself. The second one is gazru, which again, the Ramam consistently gazru for the Ramam does not mean interpreting the Torah. It means a decree that's not based in biblical interpretation. Right? The Ramam is very clear. Why in the first is the word, you know, Shadarshu necessarily a synecron for Torah versus this is a Bezdin. It's investigating the process of law. And this is, according to their tradition, what they adjudicated. Because Darshu Ba'achat Min Hamidot, they expounded through the me method of exegesis. That means it has to be the method of exegesis of biblical psukim, right? That's what he says in, in the Ramam we saw last week, right? In Aleph, Yod Aleph, I think in Talmud Torah, that, right, Darshub Achat Menamidot is figuring out what the Torah wants and interpreting it, 
right? And the Ramam is, is, says this here. The Ramam says it in Mishnah Torah, in the Akdam in Mishnah Torah. He says it in that commentary in Kalim that biblical interpretation, right, is, is different from decrees, right? And you can't decree an interpretation. That doesn't work, right? The Ramam has a middle category, right, of, um, right, so well, whatever Divrei means, he has some middle categories, but Zerah is not one of them. Zerah is pure rabbinic, right? It's a decree, and Darshu is pure biblical, or, well, I shouldn't say pure biblical. It's biblical, if not pure, right? Um, the, so Ramam, the, the Ramam is perfect, is, per, is intentionally unclear in the 17th parak of Caleb, where he says, I have this category called Divrei Sofrim, which can encompass biblical law or rabbinic law. Anything that's not explicit in the Torah is Divrei Sofrim. Some of it is legally at the level of biblical law. Some is the level of rabbinic law. But Darshu, he makes it clear there that if it's Darshu, if it's based on biblical interpretation, it is biblical law. Just interpret it. And Gazru is a decree not based on biblical law. And for the Rambam, it's very important you don't blur those categories. So if you do blur those categories for the Rambam, then you violate the biblical prohibition of Baltosif, right? Because for the Rambam, to claim that rabbinic law is more than that is itself a biblical prohibition, right? So I, I do think the Rambam is being very precise in this, in, in this case, that it's biblical. So I'm willing to buy what you're saying. So I'm willing <laughs> to buy what you're saying, but I want to be able to say, if I'm correct, that that's as interpreted rabbinically. In other words, Darshu comes through the Yud Gimel, and therefore it's textually based upon text of Doraisa, but it's still interpreted by oh, 100%, a rabbinical 100%. which is very different, what I'm trying to submit, than a Gezeira, which is an enactment which be it rabbinic, be it quasi-rabbinic, cannot be overturned because, other than with Beten because it has been so spread out through the people. So much, so much so that we know later, you know, in, in a discussion of certain things that are prohibited, like Yirchas Gavar, Shemin, you know, was not spread out. And so, therefore, since it wasn't accepted, it didn't become a prohibition. So I, look, so I think acceptance is definitely critical for the Rambam, but there's two ways you could look at that. One is that what made it binding was that it was a decree. Acceptance is a condition of a decree taking effect. The second okay. possibility is that acceptance is itself what makes it binding. The Rambam in general seems, as far as I understand the Rambam, seems to go more like the first, which is the what makes it law is that it is decreed. What allows it to become law is that it was accepted. The Gaonim, at least some of them, thought the second, which is no, acceptance is itself what makes it law, right? And that's why the Gaon, several of the Gaonim have this shocking comment, which is if there's a dispute between custom and the Bavli, which we unfortunately did not get a chance to get to. So the Rambam tells you, go like the Bavli against the custom. 
But the Gaonim say, go like the custom against the Bavli, because we only accept the Bavli because that we are accustomed to do it. And therefore, lo right? We only accept the Bavli because that was our custom. But if there's a custom to go against the Bavli, then follow the custom because it's all about acceptance. The Ramam explicitly says the opposite. And that's why I tend to think that the Ramam thinks acceptance is a condition in letting something become law rather than what makes it law. Whereas for some of the Gaonim, acceptance is what makes it law, I think. Would that explain, would that explain the machlokas between Rambam and the Ravad on Batla Hatam, Batla Hagzera or not? In other words, what is acceptance so, or not? It could and, be. I will, I will acknowledge that that is one of the hardest things to understand. The question of when we say this and when we don't, is so complicated that um, Rabbi Dr. Shlomo Brody, who's one of the most creative scholars that I know, wrote his dissertation on the question of when we say it and when we don't. That was his dissertation um, because it really is very complicated to figure out in the end of the day when we follow the rules and when we seem not to follow the rules. Um, but you may be right. You may be right. Um, so, that, okay. so, I, so I submit to you that in, at the end of the day, in terms of the heavyweight pressure that we feel, much is on nispashta, be it Torah, be it rabbinic, but much of our halachic interpretation is what has become interpreted, you know, by that culture. I mean, later on, we have different cultures, Sephardic, Ashkenazic, you'll, I'm sure, get into that. Yeah, but, that's, I think, week four, four <laughs> but, and five, five and six, I don't remember. But, but I early, have to look at, but I early said, on, this yeah. whole basis of acceptance, you know, becomes just, you know, so acceptance. Why, why don't we drink wine, you know, today that's Thamyayan, you know, and yet in the same piece, we learn about Shemin, Shemin lo nispashta, you know, and we, you know, we go but through again, all sorts of the, the, interpretations. There's, there's no argument that acceptance is important. The question is whether acceptance is important. Again, acceptance is what makes it binding itself, or if accepting is what qualifies a law to allow it to become binding. Yes, uh, another perspective on the distinction that Rambam brings between. Can you hear? Uh, yes, I can. Learning a little from, bit low, so but better. Yeah. Learning from Midot and learning and uh, accepting zero Takanot note is that, in fact, uh, since the time of the uh, of the Amoraim in Bavel, there have been no examples of a Beit Din proposing to understand Can you read your voice? Uh, a halacha based upon different uh, treatments of uh, of midot. That is, the process of midrash halacha effectively ended in the period of the of the, of the Kamarot. Uh, as opposed to Takanot and Zerot, which continue thereon. So, um, this, while I, this could be seen as a cynical um, response, I don't mean it as such, but rather that uh, um, by uh, Rambam saying, yes, a future Beit Din can go and derive a different law from uh, the process of Midrash Halakha, but in fact, that doesn't happen, and it hasn't happened as opposed to 
zero and Takahata, which is uh, they continue through our own time. Um, Good. So, so I, I think what you're saying is a hundred percent right, and I, I think that part of the answer is part of the answer might be exactly as you say, which is at some point rabbis became convinced that they no longer knew how to utilize those those mechanisms of uh, those tools of exegesis, and therefore they just didn't argue because they didn't know how to or felt they didn't know how to or whatever. That's why, well, uh, I'll be honest, I looked at the, the order of the classes that we had and I switched it around a little bit, not what classes, but the order to address your point exactly. Because what I'm gonna do next week is to show that what you're saying is half right, or more than half right, but there's exceptions, there are important exceptions. Um, did I lose David? I think I might have lost David. I can spotlight oh, him again. Oh no, there we go. Sorry, just okay. This, something happened on the screen. But okay. You're right that the rabbis stop using the Yudgim only dot, and therefore they wouldn't challenge the Gemara and say the Torah didn't mean X. But the second question, which is less clear, is that half the rabbinic world for the since then have believed that not only did we do that, but that we stopped looking at the Torah and directly deriving law from it at all. But there's another half of the rabbinic community who said, that's not true. It's true we no longer challenge the Babli because we can't, whatever, for all the reasons we talked about today, or we just don't do Midrash Halakha. But if we read the Torah and think it means something, and th there's nothing in the Talmud that says we're not right, we can create new law, even post-Talmud, right? So that we'll see of, of that, the movements as well. Say it again. Those groups of Jews who argue for social justice or for the environment are are, are oh for for sure. And and I you know just to give sort of historical perspective. What I did for next week, as we'll see, is I put the authorities that I show do this range from the Rambam, who seems to do this a lot, right? The Rambam seems to do it left, right, and center, stretching through people like Naftali Tzvi to Berlin, the Nitziv, and, you know, Mesha Chachma, but all the way to Facebook posts of, uh, of modern Israeli rabbis who were doing it in, in the, you know, in the 21st century. You're 100% right. They're... But it's not just social justice people. The Rambam seems to do it, and, and major authorities, meaning, as we'll see next week, the Nitziv creates new mitzvot. I mean, it, it's shocking, but the Nitziv actually does that. Like, you know, the example we'll see next week is the Nitziv says, oh, the Gemara says there are two mitzvot of honoring your parents, honor and fear. I think there are three, and here's the halachic implications of me creating a third mitzvah, right? And like later post him, take him seriously and try to figure out what to do with it. Like Ravadi Yosef is a long juba trying to figure out, well, what does that do? And does that overturn 500 years of, of whatever, for, for Bavadia, 500 years, so that it's in 300 years, but whatever, right? Of, of Psaac, since the time of, uh, of Shulchan Aruch, but even earlier, so maybe 400 years of the Mari Kolo, right? Um, and, uh, and, you know, Ruvadia is willing, it takes it on, and he doesn't just say, oh, you derive new things from the Psukim, illegitimate. He, you know, 
he sort of works in the system. We'll see that it's not just Rovadia, it's Ramosha Feinstein, it's, Re, it's, it's Eliezer Waldenberg. I think major authorities of the 20th century seem to think, yes, David, you're right, that we don't look into the Drushot, meaning the Yudimel Midot or the 36 Midot or whatever, but we do look back at the Torah and change, or not change, create law, right? And that's going to be our topic next week. So I think you're right. But the extent to which that's not the whole story, I think, is sometimes missed. And that's our goal next week, because it's an important part of this story. Great. Um, but yeah, that's the goal next week. And that's why I moved it to next week, because it's obviously the next logical, conceptual question you have to ask. And I think, you know, <clears throat> as we'll see next week, the best way to find all these sources, it's not like I have like an encyclopedic knowledge of everything that I can find every example. It's that there were certain rabbis who had encyclopedic knowledge who were so convinced that we can never create new law from Sukkim that they wrote pieces where they said, we can't do this. So why do these rabbis seem to do it? And then they give you a list of like a hundred places where they do it, right? <laughs> that is the, the way to figure out that maybe they're not, right? Maybe there's more to this story, but that's, that's our goal for next week. <clears throat> This might, I might be getting ahead of, of myself and of the series, um, but especially thinking about the Mishnah and the Gemara as it compares to the Shulchan Aruch later, it seems that um, something, something that gives those three in particular merit is they were done in a spirit of Achtus. Um, the... I'm sure we'll get to it, but we were saying about the Sfaradim and Ashkenazim, that both of their opinions are cited in the Shulchan Arach, and the same thing with Mishnah Gemara, that they're, they're citing many different opinions. I think um, the, the idea that since, since the beginning of Israel as a nation, that, um, there's, that there's 12 tribes and each one has its own, its own way to, to, to get to Hashem, um, that they're, they're all they're, um, that um, I think that when 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 there's an effort to to combine um, to combine many different viewpoints and, and opinions, it's almost um, paradoxically makes it more um, <clears throat> binding. Even if it's saying there are more more opinions, like Shivin Pein Latara, there's there's seventy. Um, there's many different opinions, but they, they all integrate and, and make it more binding by having more opinions there. Um, I'm sorry, I'm very disappointed what's not going on here. So I'm, yes, you packed a lot in there. You're 100% right. So yes, the question of universal acceptance is important. Um, and you are 100% right that this is going to both drive the people who think Shulchan is binding and those who challenge the binding nature of Shulchan Aruch by saying, it wasn't accepted by everybody, right? That exactly is going to be part of it. You are also right that the quoting of multiple positions is part of what allows something to become binding. Also important for Shulchan Aruch. The, the, um, the Midrashic tradition that you allude to of there being different paths for the different Shvatim, you're also 100% right, that's gonna come up. That is definitely in my source sheet, which is the, um, because that, source, I don't think you even realize how important it becomes historically to the common, to the current moment, because that, that Midrash, even though it's sort of, you know, a Midrash, um, becomes the, 
one of the key ways of understanding how we get to the common moment in the breaking point, and that's in the 16th century around Shulchan Aruch, one of the responses, uh, and this is pointed out in um, by Davis in his article on the acceptance of Shulchan Aruch, is that that comment, as we'll see, and that's week four or five, I don't remember, um, but when Rav Avram Gombiner in the Mogan Avram quotes that comment by the by Ravitz Gloria and the Arizal, um, it does seem to be, as you note, a theological, juridical, legal something claim about how we got to our current moment, right? So everything you said is right. There's a lot going on in what you said, but everything you said is right. And it's, it captures the complexity of the moment that we'll get to in the 16th century, um, 15th, 16th, 15th, 16th, 17th, you know, but yes, you're 100% right. All that is true. And all that is part of what makes that century of Shulchan Aruch so complicated is everything you said is the question of different traditions being legitimated on the one hand that gives you more options on the other hand that in a certain sense consolidates us to a a smaller group of opinions meaning whatever made it into made it into that consensus is now there even if it's not a single consensus but it's a consensus of you know one of three or one of four but nothing else you're 100 percent right so but yeah that is week i think it was originally supposed to be week next week but i i i i I just rearranged it because I think the Sukkim question has to go first logically. Um, but the two weeks that we're spending on <clears throat> Shulchan Aruch and uh, and the shifts uh, based on geography, starting in the 15th century, going to the 20th and 21st, we're going to discuss that. That was the one where I said I can't do it in an hour to begin with. That we're having two classes on it, so that you know I don't just have to stick around for questions. I can say. Whatever we get to this week, we get to, and whatever we get to next week, we will at least spend two hours and try to do our best to uh, to tackle that. But then, hopefully, we hopefully by the end, again, I make no promises. By the end, you'll have clarity. I will do my best that you will understand how unclear these things are and how everything you said is articulated by someone. What is right, I can't tell you. What people, the way the rabbinic, you know, history has developed and how it's been conceptualized. We will explore what, which one is right. I don't know, but we will try to explore these as much as possible. But that's in two weeks, two and three, two and three weeks. Um, okay. So, well, thank you everyone for staying on for an extra 35 minutes to talk. This is, you know, hopefully that means that you're interested in what I have to say. So that's good. And uh, thank you. I'm glad that other people are enjoying your talk. Rabbi Zering, yeah. thank you so much for this interesting second class, and thank you for answering uh, all the great questions that we got today. That was very interesting. Um, I'm really looking forward to next week, and thank you everyone here for all the great questions, uh, everyone on Zoom, any, everyone who joined us on Drisha Live, and also on Facebook. We continue our spring <clears throat> program tomorrow, Tuesday at 8 p.m. with the second class in the series on the laws of Nida with Rabbi uh, Lea Sarna. Uh, and Rabbi Nitzara Wolkenfeld. And on Wednesday this week, we continue with the second class in the series, Profiles in Psak, which highlights a different guest speaker at each week. In addition, we have many more classes happening right now, so I hope you can uh, uh, join us. You can find more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org classes, or you can watch us live at www.drisha.org live. 
Thank you again, uh, Rabbi Zering. That was wonderful. And thanks again to everyone uh, for attending. And we hope to see you soon at one of our upcoming classes here at Drisha.